You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15. So New Testament, and then you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, then the book of Acts, and then Romans. That's what we've been studying for the past couple months, and we're really close to finishing it. Next week, we're going to finish this study, and then we're going to go into our Advent series, and then right after that, we're going to do a study of the prophets, which I'm really looking forward to. So uh, keep that uh, in your minds. But today, we are finishing up chapter 15. We've been going through the book of Romans, this letter written by Paul the Apostle to the Christians in Rome, and we've been going through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter from beginning to end, and here we are now towards the very end. We'll begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from uh, Romans chapter 15. We're going to be studying this morning from verse 14, but our reading today will be from verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any more room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what was collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the peace of God be with you all. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these words, as we consider what they mean for us today, Lord, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might see glorious things about you in your word. Lord, that we might not only hear your word and understand it, Lord, that we might also, this might also translate into action in our lives. Lord, would you transform our minds and work in our hearts by your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There they were out on the open sea. The wind and the waves were relentlessly beating against the side of the ship. The storm had been going on for several days now. The first couple days of the storm, all of their concern was how much of the cargo they would be able to save and how much would be lost because of the storm. But as day three, four, and into day six and seven and eight came on, more and more they began wondering if this ship is even going to survive the storm and if any of the souls on board that ship will survive the storm at all. And if they do survive, where will they even end up? Because they haven't seen the sun, they haven't seen the stars, the moon for days. They have no bearing on where they are, and the captain gave up a long time ago trying to hold that wheel straight and keep that boat on course. They've been driven off course by this storm. They have no idea where they're going, where they'll end up, or when they'll get there. If they do survive, that is, Who knows if they will? They've been blown so far off course, they have no idea where they are, no idea where they're headed, or if they will even make it at all. And in the midst of this storm, there's a man on that boat, a prisoner, and he's thinking to himself, you know, I kind of wish I hadn't written chapter 15. 
of Romans, right? The, that man's name was the Paul the Apostle. And that storm at sea, we read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 27. It happened several years after what he wrote here when he wrote this letter to the Romans in which he told them at the end of chapter 15 about all the things that he was gonna do after he wrote that letter. He said, as soon as I put down this pen, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. And he writes it all down here. I'm gonna go visit you guys and I'm gonna go to Spain. And he says, pray for me that when I come to you, I would just come in the blessing of the Lord. And he says, pray for me that I would be delivered from those in Judea who want my head. And guess what? None of his prayers were answered. He was not delivered from those in Judea who wanted him imprisoned. They did put him in prison. And guess what? He wanted to come to Rome and all the blessing. Well, he came to Rome, but not as a missionary, as a prisoner. You know, and several years later, after being kind of kicked around as a political pawn, you see, Paul had these great plans, and we know that nothing worked out according to his plan. And you can imagine Paul sitting there on that ship in the midst of this storm, and maybe feeling a little bit of embarrassment over what he wrote at the end of Romans 15. Man, I was so confident in my plans. I thought I knew how everything was gonna work out when I wrote that letter back in the day, but man, nothing has worked out the way that I thought it would or even the way that I prayed it would. There's a saying that goes, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him about your plans. If you wanna make God laugh, tell him all about your plans, right? What you're gonna do and where you're gonna go. Because so many times we make up all these plans, we have all these great ideas and our lives go in a completely different direction. And God knows ahead of time that that's gonna happen. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that's the story of your life, right? You're like, that's me. I made a lot of plans. I had all these big ideas about where my life was gonna go, how things were gonna end up, and none of them have happened exactly the way I thought they would. And what do you do in those cases? What do you do in those situations when life doesn't go according to your plan? How do you react to that? Or maybe let's even take a step back from that and let's ask a more fundamental question. How do you even go about making plans in the first place? Like what is the criteria upon which you decide what you are going to do, how you are gonna plot the course for your life? That's a very important question to ask, especially this time of year as we get close to the new year and we start looking forward to the future. Well, here at the end of Romans chapter 15, we see that Paul did have a guiding principle for his life. And we see how that shaped the way, not only that he planned, but the way that he also reacted when things didn't go according to his plan. The title of today's message is Developing a Missional Mentality. And here's what we're gonna see in this chapter. Number one, we're gonna talk about Paul's missional mentality. And number two, we're gonna talk about how to react when things don't go according to your plan. So Paul's missional mentality, and then how to react when things don't go according to your plan. We'll begin by talking about the first one of those, Paul's missional mentality. There are three key aspects that we see in this text about Paul's missional mentality, what it was and what were the aspects of it. The first one that we see is this, key to Paul's missional mentality was the centrality of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel. Paul begins this section by saying this in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, brethren, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Here at the end of this letter, after everything Paul's written, he's laid out for them in detail what the gospel is and what it means for our lives, all the details of it. He's answered some frequently asked questions about the gospel. Then he talked about how the gospel 
transforms all of our relationships. And now here he's concluding, but he's thinking back, you know, all of these things that I've written them, I wrote them about what the gospel is and what the gospel does and, and how it changes your life. And after all these written these things, Paul starts to wonder, man, I hope these guys aren't going to take this the wrong way. I hope they're not going not gonna to think that I was being presumptuous or, or that I am writing this because I think that they're ignorant or because I think that they're weak. Uh, maybe you've had a situation like that in your life. I know I certainly have, where you write someone an email or, or say a text message or some kind of letter and the person totally misreads your intent and your heart in sending that and your purpose, your tone in sending that message. And what you intended perhaps to be helpful or even funny, they read it as insulting or offensive. And that's exactly what Paul is worried about here at the end of the letter. He's a little bit worried that the Roman Christians are going to get this letter. They're going to open it up. They're going to read it. And rather than being encouraged and, and thankful for it, they're going to be offended by it and find it a bit presumptuous. Like what if they get this letter, they open it up, they read it, and they're like, hey, what does this guy think, that we're stupid or something? Like that we just are new to this, that we don't know the basics of Christianity? I mean, we've been Christians for years, some of them might say. And he's here telling us the basics of Christianity? Who does he think he is? Where does he come off? This guy's never even met us before. Paul realizes that they could take this letter the wrong way. And so here at the end, he writes these words to clarify his intent and to share with them his heart. He wants to, them to know what his motivation is in writing this. Because remember, Paul had never met these people. And so unlike some of Paul's other letters where he knew the people, he knew their church, he knew the situations that were going on, and he wrote to address certain problems and to help fix those problems, the letter to Romans is different. Paul had never met these people, and so as he writes to them, he wants to do two things. Primarily, what he wants to do is give them a resource, a resource that they can use for years to come, but he also wants to give them a source of encouragement. So how are you going to encourage people? He says, I'm going to encourage you with the gospel. So that's what he does. He gives them a detailed explanation of the gospel. We saw that in chapters 1 through 8, and then even into chapter 11. He wants to encourage them by reminding them of the gospel. And secondly, he wants to give them a resource that they can use for years to come. Something that they can duplicate, something that they can distribute, something they can use as new people come into the church, as new Christians are coming in. Something they can use to train them and teach them. And truly, this is a resource that even today, as we study it, that's what we're doing right now. We're benefiting from this resource. And so Paul says, hey, look, the reason I wrote you this letter, it wasn't to be presumptuous. Just understand, my calling is to be a minister of the gospel. So if this is new to some of you, that's fine. Because here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is something that we need to be constantly and consistently reminded of. The gospel is something we need to be constantly and consistently reminded of. Did you know that? Did you know that you never outgrow the gospel. Did you know that? You never outgrow the gospel. You never get to the point where you move beyond the gospel into the deeper stuff. Let me tell you this, friends. There is no deeper stuff than that God became a man and gave his life for us. There's no deeper stuff than that. See, the gospel, the core message of Christianity, it's the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that message has implications for every area of our lives, from the way we spend our money to the way that we work to the way that we live in our relationships with our kids and our spouses and every area of our lives. The gospel has implications for it. The gospel message, who Jesus is and what he did. Let's talk about who he is. Jesus is God incarnate. That's what we're celebrating as we get closer to Christmas. 
that God took on human flesh. He became one of us so that as one of us, he might save us. And how did he do that? What did Jesus do? Well, he lived, first of all, a perfect and holy life. Whereas we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of God in his life. And then you know what he did? He offered that perfect record to us as a gift. He said, my perfect record, I'll give it to you so that when you stand before God, you will be totally blameless so that he will accept you in me. And in exchange, what did he do? He took our sins, as he gave us his perfect record, he took our sins, our shortcomings, and he suffered and died for those on the cross to set us free. Now, why would God do all that for you? Very simple, because he loves you very much. I hope that you know that. I hope that you know that in your heart and in your mind and that you feel it, that God loves you very much and he didn't want you, he doesn't want you to perish. That message is the gospel. It's the good news. And let me tell you this, you never outgrow that message. You never move on past that message. We need to be reminded of it over and over and over. And so it, it's not only non-Christians who need to hear the gospel. You know this, the Christians need to hear the gospel as well. Because the gospel is not just the means by which we become Christians. The gospel itself is the means by which we grow as Christians. They say the mark of a good teacher is repetition. Let me say that one more time. The mark of a good teacher is repetition. And sometimes people get this idea in their minds that what they need, what we need, is some kind of new revelation from God, right? Some kind of new message from God or some kind of new information about God. But let me tell you this. What we need is not a new revelation. What we need is to take the old and unchanging truths of God's word and apply them to our lives in a fresh way for today. We don't need a new revelation. We need to take these old and unchanging truths from God's word and we need to apply them to our lives in a fresh way. What we have here is the full revelation of God to us. Everything we need for life and godliness. And so what we need to do is take these old and unchanging truths and apply them to our lives in a whole new way. See, there's a saying that goes like this. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. So if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. So just keep that in mind. Next time somebody comes along and tells you that they had some kind of new revelation from God, something that nobody's ever heard before. I mean, think about it. Do you think that God would really let people go for this long and, and then give us some new information? What about all those people before us? Did they not need to know that stuff too? See, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. What we need to do is take the old and unchanging truths of God's word and apply them to our lives in a fresh way today. And that's why Paul says, hey, what I've written to you in this letter, I know it's not going to be new information to some of you. I know that some of you are very familiar with this. Maybe you've been Christian for a long time, but I need to remind you of it because... No matter how long you've been a Christian, you never outgrow the gospel and you constantly need to hear it consistently again and again so that it can continue to do its work of transforming your heart, transforming your mind, and transforming every area of your life. If you look at Paul's letters, including this one, you'll notice that he follows that pattern in all of his letters. And it's true of actually all the New Testament letters, not just Paul's letters. Notice this. You'll notice this when you read Paul's letters. He never says, hey, you should be generous because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't say that. He not, nor does he say something like, hey, you should forgive other people because that's what Christians are required to do. 
Nor does he say that with any area. You know what Paul does in every area? Whenever he talks about some area of how we live our lives, he ties it into the gospel. He says, look at how Jesus lived. He who was rich became poor for our sakes, so that through him we who are poor might become rich in him. In other words, Jesus was so generous. He was generous to the point of giving everything. So therefore, in response to that, let us be generous with what we have as well, even to the point of holding nothing back. He says, let us forgive just as in Christ God has forgiven us. Think about what Jesus did for you and how could you not, in response to that, forgive others. You see what I'm doing? He's, or you see what he's doing? He's using the gospel as the motivation, as the foundation for everything in the Christian life. In other words, the gospel isn't just how you become a Christian. It's also the means by which you grow as a Christian by hearing the gospel again and again and applying it to every area of your life. You know, the, the second aspect as we go on to Paul's missional mentality, first we see the centrality of the gospel. The second thing we see is the importance of the mission. So core to his missional mentality was the importance of the mission. In verse 16, Paul describes his work as proclaiming the gospel of God to the nations. Proclaiming the gospel of God to the nations. Now in some of your Bibles, it's going to say to the Gentiles. Whereas in other Bibles that you might read, it's going to say to the nations. And so that's the same word, actually. The better translation is really to the nations because the word Paul uses there in the original Greek text is the Greek word ethnos, which probably sounds familiar. It's the word from which we get our word ethnicity or ethnic groups. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I was given this calling from God to preach the gospel to every nation, every ethnic group, every people group in the world. See, for the Jewish people, the reason it uses the word Gentiles here is because for the Jewish mind, the world was divided into two categories. You're either a Jew or you weren't a Jew. And to be not a Jew, a non-Jew, is to be a Gentile. So it was Jews and the nations, ethnos. And so what he's saying here is that God gave me a calling to bring the gospel to all nations of the world. What Paul's conveying is that his passion, the focus of his life, is proclaiming the gospel to the nations, all people groups around the world. See, Christianity is a missional faith because we have a missional God. You know that? Christianity is a missional faith because we have a missional God. We have a God who left the comfort of heaven and came to us. The very ultimate missionary, Jesus was. See, the word mission comes from the word send. Missio in Latin literally just means to send. And that's what Christianity is all about. We have a God who looked upon us, saw us in dire straits, saw our pain, our hurt, our suffering, the fact that we were lost and dying, and he sent his son on a mission to rescue us. But then the son, Jesus, not only did he come to save us, but you might remember that after he saves us, he turns around to us and says, just as the father sent me, now I send you. So Jesus was sent, and then Jesus sends us. Christianity is a missional faith because we have a missional God and we have a missional Savior. So to be a Christian is this. It is to be one who is saved, but it is also to be one who is sent. To be a Christian is to be one who is saved and also one who is sent. And the whole Bible is the story of God's mission to bring redemption to our lost and broken and fallen world. And the, the incredible thing to consider is this, that he has chosen to use us to play a part in that work, in that mission. Paul says this in verse 16, that the work of proclaiming the gospel, he says it is a priestly ministry, a priestly ministry. The job of a priest in the Old Testament was to represent God to the people. 
So the job of priest in the Old Testament was to represent God to the people. Now think about what that means for you and me. If the mission, if the work of spreading the gospel is a priestly ministry, what does that mean? It means that when you do the work of proclaiming the gospel, you are doing a priestly ministry. You are acting as God's representative to that person that you speak to and to whom you speak the gospel. So whether it's talking to your neighbor and the conversation somehow turns to Jesus in the gospel, whether it's in your community group where you're just getting to remind someone as they talk about something going on in their life, you're able to bring the gospel into that situation, remind them of how the gospel applies to that particular situation. That's a priestly ministry. You get to be God's representative to speak the message of truth and life to that person. In other words, being missional and looking for opportunities to speak the gospel to people, that's not just an additional add-on, like an optional add-on to the Christian life. It is a core, central part of what it means to be a Christian. Paul says in verses 18, or 17 and 18, he says this, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Paul the Apostle was probably the greatest theologian in the history of the church, especially the early church. He was the greatest theologian. And here what we have in Romans is kind of his magnum opus of Christian theology, his work as a Christian theologian. But here's the thing that's interesting. Paul says, it wasn't my work that as a theologian that thrilled me and excited me and got me out of bed in the morning. You know what thrilled me and excited me? The thing that I want to boast the most about and brag about the most? It was my work as an evangelist. That's what enlivens my heart. Not writing theoretically about God, but getting out there and bringing that living truth into people's lives to help them go from death into life. He understood that he had been sent by God on a mission to bring God's love and truth to the world. Now let me ask you this. Do you know that that's true of you as well? Do you know that? Do you live with that thought in the forefront of your mind, that awareness that you have been called by God and therefore you have also been sent out by God? So if you've been called to God, you've also been sent out by God on his mission. This mission to seek and save that which is lost and broken, to do his work of dispelling lies and bringing truth that gives life, to do this work of binding up that which is broken, and bringing healing and restoration and reconciliation. And we get to speak the words of eternal life into people's lives. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that we develop a missional mentality is by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. The way you develop a missional mentality is by keeping your eyes focused on Jesus. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2 of Philippians, he says this. He says, I want you to have the same mind, the same attitude, the same outlook that Jesus also had. That although he was God, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. See, Jesus lived his life with a missional mentality. He was hyper aware of the fact that he had been sent by God to this earth on a mission for a purpose. And so the focus of his life wasn't to make himself comfortable. It was Holy to fulfill the mission which the Father had sent him here to carry out. 
You know, a few years ago, I read a book by Sebastian Junger. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was a New York Times bestseller, but it was called Tribe. If you haven't read it, it's a very interesting book, very short and fast read. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Now, Sebastian is not a Christian, and I don't agree with all of his data or all of his analysis or all of his conclusions, but what he wrote about in this book was very interesting uh, in regard to what we're talking about here and the need for mission. He backed it up with research and data. Let's check out some of the stuff he said. Basically, his big point was this. In order to be a healthy person, you need difficulty in your life. You need hardship. You need challenges in your life. You need to be stretched. In order for you to be healthy emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually even, you need challenges. You need difficulty. You need something to live for which is bigger than just yourself and your own comfort and your own pleasure and your own fulfillment. You need to be stretched. And yet we live in a society here in the West particularly where we have spent so much time and so much energy and so much focus on making ourselves comfortable and insulating ourselves so that we don't have to deal with difficulty and hardship. And as a result, we actually have higher rates of depression and anxiety than any other society that has ever existed in the history of the world. We're the most wealthy society in the history of the world, and at the same time, we're the most depressed society. And he's saying that there's a correlation between the two. Here's some of the things he pointed out. Poor countries, for example, did you know this? Poor countries have lower rates of depression than wealthy countries. In fact, the World Health Organization reported that the rate of depression in wealthy countries like the United States is eight times higher than that of poorer countries. You know, when you hear about this, people go on trips to, to poorer places in the world and they say, yeah, it's so weird. The people there seem so happy. And that's so confusing for us, right? Because we, we think that everybody must be super depressed over there because they're not here with us having a good time, right? Like we've only got first world problems. They've got bigger problems. But see, here's the interesting thing we actually have higher rates of depression than they do. Here's another interesting st statistic he points out. The last great national tragedy that we had here in the United States, arguably, was September 11, 2001, and when we had the terror attacks in New York City. And of course, that, that attack hit New York City harder than anywhere else in the country. So if you look at New York City and how people reacted in response to that, here's the interesting thing. In the six months following 9-11, suicide rates in New York City dropped by 20%. The murder rate dropped by 40%. Like people stopped murdering each other. And for the first time in recent history, the number of people taking antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication dropped radically. Now, why was that? And here's why. Because during that time, people had a mission. They had something, a purpose, a hardship, a difficulty. There was something going on that was bigger than just them and their life and their little world. You see, there were other people who needed help, who needed comfort. And knowing that and having that sense of purpose and mission, which goes beyond just living for yourself, it actually drove people out beyond themselves and it had good effects on them in their whole person. And here's the thing about, though, Sebastian Junger's book. He, he makes a great analysis, and he makes a great diagnosis of what the problem is, but he never really gives a solution. That's where his book falls short. See, but when we take that information that he presents, and we bring it here to what we're talking about with the gospel, then it all comes full circle. See, because there is no mission which is more important, which is more vital, which is more urgent 
than the mission of the gospel and bringing the good news of the gospel into the world. This is the mission for which God himself was willing to become one of us and give everything and even die. See, our mission is to bring the only message that brings the dead to life. It's the only message which brings hope to those who are hopeless. It's the only message of hope and healing for those who are suffering. And I was challenged this week personally to think about this in regard to how I pray. Now, I want you to think about this yourself too. How many of my prayers, you can ask yourself the same question, how many of my prayers are focused, are spent asking God to protect me from things? So many times, right? That's all we do. God, protect me from this. Protect me as I travel. Protect the people I love. We're asking God so often to protect us from things or we're so focused on getting things which will make us comfortable. How much more, though, should we be praying prayers that are in line with God's mission, God's calling on our lives? Radical prayers, challenging prayers that say, God, use me. Let me be a penny in your pocket. Spend me however brings you the most pleasure and the most glory. That was the second aspect of Paul's missional mentality, the importance of the mission. The third aspect is this, the goal of transformation. He says there in verse 18, the ultimate goal of it all is to bring the nations to obedience, to bring the nations to obedience. See, right before Jesus ascended, maybe you remember this, he spoke to his disciples and he gave them what we call the Great Commission. Here's what he said. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And check this out, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the goal of the mission that Jesus gave isn't just to make converts, it's beyond that. It's to make disciples. The goal of the mission is complete life transformation. It's not just to get people to tick a box or raise their hand or even just to get baptized. It goes beyond that to complete life transformation. Not just converts, but disciples. That's why Paul said, actually here at the beginning of the book of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 5, he said this, we have received this grace and this apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It's not just about making converts. It's about making disciples. People whose lives are transformed and shaped and healed and improved by the gospel and bring it into every area of their lives. Paul says at the end of verse 18, he says that the way he seeks to accomplish this mission is by word and by deed. And I love that. See, words matter, but deeds also matter. It's not one or the other. It's not that we preach the gospel with words or we preach the gospel with deeds. It has to be both. Our deeds have to back up our words, but we do need the words. You see, in verse 19, then Paul goes on. And he transitions now into talking about his plans for the future. He says, I have fulfilled my ministry in this area. I've brought the gospel all the way from Jerusalem, all the way up to Irilicum. That's modern day Albania, kind of like uh, Bosnia, southern Bosnia, Albania. Now Paul says, starting in verse 20, he says, now I'm setting my eyes on new frontiers. I want to go to a new region. I want to go to a place where the gospel hasn't been preached yet. Specifically, he tells us in verse 24, what he has in mind is he wants to go to Spain, a yet unreached part of the world at that time. Paul had this missional mentality. That's what drove him. That's what drove him to make his plans and, and see his future. He believed in the centrality of the gospel. He believed in the importance of the mission. And he believed in the goal of transformation. 
And that missional mentality is what shaped and guided all of his plans as he, as he made them. So let me ask you this. Do you live with that awareness in your mind that you are a woman or a man on a mission? That you have been called by God and you have been given a purpose by God which is bigger than just yourself and living for yourself and making yourself fulfilled and comfortable. It's much more important than that and it's much bigger than that. Let's move on to our second point, which is this. How do we react when things don't go according to your plan? How do you react when things don't go according to your plan? So just a little bit historical context here. Paul was writing this letter from the city of Corinth. He was no longer living in Corinth. He had lived in Corinth years ago. Most recently, he's been living in Ephesus, where he lived and he pastored for three years but he's recently just left Ephesus, and he talks about this, by the way, if you're interested, in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. We see that Paul leaves Ephesus, and he goes back and visits some of the churches that he started years ago. He visits Philippi. He visits Corinth, and it says that he stayed there in the region of Corinth for three months. And it was during those three months that Paul visited Corinth after he left Ephesus, this is Acts chapter 20, that Paul sat there and he sat down and he wrote this letter to the Romans from the city of Corinth. And, uh, and here's what's interesting. The reason Paul had gone back to Corinth and back to Philippi was because we know from all of his letters and, and from the book of Acts, he was taking up a collection, a financial donation from the churches in those regions that he wanted to take to the church in Jerusalem. He says that actually here in Romans 15, verse uh, 25 through 27. He says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints for Macedonia. That's Philippi. The, Philippi was the capital of Macedonia. And Achaia, Corinth was the capital of Achaia, it's a region, they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So the Jerusalem church, that was the original church, right? This is like church OG, right? This is number one. But there were a lot of poor people in that church, and they were struggling. And so as an act of solidarity and kindness, Paul says, hey, how cool would it be if we could get some of these newer churches, some of these Greek-speaking churches in the region of Greece, Macedonia, Achaia, if they could pitch in some money, and we could take it, and we could just bless those people in Jerusalem. Wouldn't that just communicate the solidarity that we have in the body of Christ, that we are one body, and we're all in this together? And so Paul says in verse 28 and 29, here in, here in Romans 15, he says, when I have completed this, and I've delivered to them what's been collected, then I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's plan is to take this financial gift, this donation to the church in Jerusalem, and then hop on a boat and go over to Rome, hang out with those guys for a while, and then hop on another boat and go over to Spain and preach the gospel there. Except, as you know, that is not at all what happened. Things did not go according to his plan at all. Paul did go to Jerusalem. He did drop off the money, but he wasn't very well received. We read about that in Acts chapter 21. When he got to Jerusalem, not only was he not really well received by the church there, but he wasn't well received by the people in the city. There were a lot of people who didn't like him and they conspired against him and they started a riot and they blamed him for it and he ends up getting arrested for it. That's Acts chapter 21. And the authorities, they look into the situation, they realize that Paul didn't actually commit a real crime. There's nothing they can charge him with. And yet, it's such a politically charged environment that they say, you know what, we're just going to keep Paul in jail just to make our constituents happy. 
And so they keep Paul in jail with no charges against him for years, kind of kicking him around, moving him from one place to the next, injustice, unfairness, until Paul finally kind of pulls the only card he has. He appeals his case to the highest court in the entire empire. And so after years in prison, Paul finds himself on a boat being taken to Rome, not as a missionary, but as a prisoner. And it's during this time that Paul finds himself in the middle of that great storm we talked about earlier that's written about in Acts chapter 27 that drives his ship way off course. Ultimately, it leads to a shipwreck. Literally nothing went according to Paul's plan. And after the shipwreck, they transport Paul to Rome where he's held for years under house arrest as a prisoner awaiting trial. Paul's attitude, though, there under that house arrest, it's interesting. Rather than seeing it as an incredible difficulty, he sees it as an incredible opportunity. Here he is in this house. His goal is to speak the gospel to people. And here he is in this house. He's got armed guards. They're chained to him 24 hours a day. They're on six-hour shifts. So every couple hours, he gets a new one. And Paul's mentality was, hey, you know what? It's not me who's chained to you. It's you who's chained to me. I have a captive audience. You can't even get away. I can just tell you whatever I want for six hours. And then when you're done, I get a new set of people. And then guess what? I get to see you again tomorrow. That was Paul's attitude. And guess what? We know that many of those people became Christians. Paul writes about that in his letter to the Philippians, that many of the guards are becoming Christians as he's spending time with them and telling them about what Jesus did in his life. Paul also used this opportunity to write letters which are now part of our New Testament. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. And we know that after a few years under house arrest, Paul finally gets to stand trial before Caesar Nero himself. And you better believe that Paul used that opportunity to tell the most powerful man in the world all about Jesus and what Jesus had done in his life. Paul was actually exonerated. He was let go. We don't know what he did exactly after that. Many people believe that he did go to Spain just as he had planned to always. But we don't have any proof of that. The only thing we do know is this. That a few years after he was exonerated in that trial before Caesar Nero, he was then arrested. See, fires broke out in Rome and Nero blamed the Christians. They were an easy target, a minority that kind of everybody could rally against. And they started the very first Christian persecution in the city of Rome. And it was during that time that Paul the Apostle was also arrested. He was placed not under house arrest, but in a dungeon. And that dungeon was where he wrote his final letter, 2 Timothy, the final letter he wrote before he died. And shortly after that, he was executed. Nothing went the way Paul had planned. He had this big plan for his life to go to sunny Spain. And instead, he ends up in a dungeon, under arrest for years, in a dungeon, finally executed. Now check this out. In verses 30 through 32, I think this is interesting. Paul asks the believers to pray for him that he'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Was he? Kind of, but not really. They didn't kill him, but they did get him arrested. Then he asks, hey, I know that when I come to you, I'm going to be refreshed by your company. He didn't make it to them for several years, and when he did, he came as a prisoner. In spite of all Paul's prayers, in spite of asking others to pray for him, things didn't really work out according to the way he planned or the way he wanted. But if you look at this, there are a few things that we can learn from it about navigating life when things don't go according to your plan. Three points and then we're done. Number one, it's more important where you are in Christ than where you are in life. Do you know that? It's more important where you are in Christ than where you are in life. 
If you read through Paul's letters that he wrote during this period when he was being, uh, serving as a prisoner, when nothing was going according to his plan, what you find is that Paul was much more concerned, much more interested in where he was in Christ than where he was in life. He says things during that time like this. He says, all the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, I have learned to be content in all things because I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. See, Paul was able to weather the storms of this life, the unexpected changes, the twists and turns, the changes in his plans and understanding because he understood this. It's much more important who you are in Christ than where you're at in life. See, our primary goal should be how we live this life, not where we end up in this life. It should be how we live this life, not where we end up in this life. We leave that part up to God, but how we live this life is the part where we're focused on. So whether Paul was shipwrecked in Malta, whether he was under house arrest, he never lost sight of his mission. And for us, even if your life takes a different course than you thought it would, your identity in Christ and your calling from Christ, those things never change. The second point is this. You make plans, but you surrender the outcome to God. You make plans, but you surrender the outcome to God. So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9, it says this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his path. See, Paul made all these plans, but they didn't work out the way he planned at all. So then we might say, well, then maybe we should just not make any plans because, you know, we don't want to be presumptuous and make God think, oh, you know, we're, we got all these plans, but God might have a completely different plan. No, the Bible actually says that making plans is a very good thing. In fact, it has some very harsh things to say against people who don't plan ahead and don't look forward to the future. See, there was nothing wrong with the fact that Paul made plans. There was nothing presumptuous about that. But what was great about Paul, what makes him a great person, is that as those plans changed, he didn't get bitter about it. He didn't get mad at God. He surrendered the outcome to God, even if it wasn't the outcome that he had originally or would have picked for himself. A good perspective on this is found in Proverbs 21, verse 31, where it says this, The horse is made ready for the day of battle. But the victory belongs to the Lord. So the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. See, your job is to prepare the horse for battle, but the outcome of the battle is up to God. You have no control over the outcome, but what you do have control over, what you do have responsibility for, is preparing the horse for battle, doing what you have been called to faithfully do unto God. And so what we do, we work hard, we prepare, we plan ahead, everything that we do, but then in our hearts and our minds, we settle that we surrender the outcome, whatever it is, to God. For those of you who are parents, this applies to how we raise our kids. We do everything that depends on us, but we leave the outcome to God. You know, that applies to us in our church as we're seeking to get into our own facility. We want to do everything that depends on us, and then we want to leave the outcome to God for him to open up the door or close the door where appropriate. See, we do that in every area of our lives. Everything that depends on us, we do it as diligently and faithfully as possible, but we submit the end results over to God. We surrender it to him, and we determine that no matter what it is, we will trust him in the midst of it. And finally this, we never lose sight of God's providence and God's promise. We never lose sight of God's providence and God's promise. Paul had a great plan. It was a good plan to visit Rome and then go to Spain and preach the gospel. But God had a different plan for Paul. Ultimately, God's plan led to Paul being able to do some really cool things that he would never have been able to do otherwise if things had gone according to Paul's plan. This plan led him before kings and rulers. It led him ultimately before the most powerful person in the world where he was able to give testimony of God to Caesar Nero himself. 
In other words, Paul, God had a great plan for Paul's life. It's one, though, that Paul would have never chosen if it was up to him. Here's the other thing, though. As Paul was going, this, going through this for years, he didn't know how it was going to end up. He didn't know for sure that it was going to have such a great and glorious ending. All he could do is walk through those dark moments, not knowing what comes next, like on that shipwreck, not knowing if he's even going to live another day or where it's going to take him. The only thing he could do was trust in God's providence and God's promises. And that's the same for us as well. When life takes an unexpected turn, when things don't go as you hoped or planned, never lose sight of God's providence, his loving providence, and his awesome purposes and plans. In conclusion, what are you going to do when life doesn't go according to your plan? And what is that guiding principle for your life upon which you base your plans in the first place? Here in Romans chapter 15, we learn that from the Apostle Paul, here's what we learn is that when you surrender your life to Jesus, he might take you in a completely different direction than you ever imagined. But there is no more secure place to be, and there is no more joyful place to be than in Christ and on mission with Christ. So may we be those who experience that peace and that joy even as we leave this place today. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you have given us your mission so that we might experience your joy. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today and they would say, you know what, that's the story of my life. It's taken turns and twists that I had never thought of and that I wouldn't have expected. Things have not gone according to my plan. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this, Lord, that you might take the messes of our lives, Lord, even if we're the ones responsible for those messes, and Lord, you might make them into something great and glorious, which brings glory to you and brings joy to our hearts, and Lord, something that you use to bring joy to the world. Lord, we submit our lives to you. Lord, we say, our lives are yours. Take them and use them for your mission, your purpose, your glory. Lord, may we not live for ourselves. May we live for you because, Lord, you gave yourself for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.